0: Welcome to Carmelite Conversations. This is Frances Harry, your hostess. I thank you for joining me on this special podcast as we pay tribute to St. John of the Cross, whose feast day and solemnity for all Carmelites is coming up this December the 14th. St. John of the Cross is a great saint to ponder during this Advent season. You know, some say he was born on June 24th, the Feast of St. John the Baptist, who prepares the way of the Lord and who is in the readings in this Advent season. And John of the Cross also prepares the way of the Lord by his example and through his teachings on prayer, especially in regards to the dark night of the soul, which in essence is a preparation of the soul for the illumination by God. St. John of the Cross also died during the Advent season. Many of his big points in his life happened during Advent So it is with great joy that we pay this tribute to St. John of the Cross. And I have a special guest with me today to talk about this topic, how we should approach the poetry of St. John of the Cross, because he's he's known um, to be one of the best poets, um, mystical poets. Um, So um, we have a wonderful discussion coming up. But first, let us start with prayer. Let us get recollected. And let us pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Awaken and enlighten us, my Lord, that we might know and love the blessings which you ever proposed to us, and that we might understand that you have moved to bestow favors on us and have remembered us. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And that actually was a prayer from St. John of the Cross. Well now let me tell you a little bit about our guest, Tim Beaton. He is a definitively um, professed secular discount, Carmelite and he belongs to our Mother of Good Counsel community, OCS community in Dayton, Ohio. He's an excellent person to talk about the poetry of St. John of the Cross. why? Because he himself is a poet and he is published and he is the author of two books of poetry, that you can find online, the raw stillness of heaven, and the wanderings of an ordinary pilgrim. So, um, it is with great joy I welcome you, Tim Beat. Hello, how are you?
1: Thanks, Francis. It was great to be here.
0: Well, we have an interesting conversation before us, and I think anyone who knows Saint John of the Cross falls in love with his poetry. And so, I want to start with this question. Are there any hints from John's life that give us a sense of his literary nature and beauty, which of course are all evident in his poetry?
1: Well, there sure are. and. Um a lot of what we're going to talk about today the, you know the main source that i used is the collected works of saint john of the cross by ics publications what a wonderful book um, because it not only has um, commentary it has a biography in there it has this poetry it's just a wonderful wonderful resource and um, so uh, i highly recommend that but there's a great biography in there it's not too too long i think it's um, probably five or ten pages in the collected works And as I read through it, I just want to share a few highlights that I think are pertinent when we look at his poetry, and um, especially as we talk about the Living Flame of Love, which is um, one of his famous poems.
0: Yeah, I'm just going to add real quick in here, I know you're going to tell us a little bit of the snippets of his biography, but I just want to tell people that there's a wonderful historical novel about of the John John of the Cross um, by José Luis. Olai Zola, O L A I Z O L A, it's by Ignatius Press. I really have enjoyed that historical novel, so I just thought I'd throw that in as we talk about John's biography.
1: You can never have too many books, can you? <laughs> not me.
0: <laughs>
1: so, a few of the things I, I saw in, um, in the ICS publications in the biography section. Um, one was that John's father um, came from a wealthy family. They were silk merchants in Toledo. And he married uh, Catalina Alvarez, who was a weaver from a poor and humble family. And so as we had talked before, Frances, you had said it was almost like a Romeo and Juliet story a little bit.
0: Right, because here he was in a noble family. But this woman that he was wanting to marry and did marry was in the low class caste the lower levels of society and his family basically disowned him because he would go ahead and marry her and even though they were wealthy they didn't support him at all and so he did marry his wife and um They had a a life of poverty ahead of them, which was very unfortunate. But the beauty of it is that that's how important love was for him. And I think that sets the tone for John of the Cross for all of his life because he knows this about his father and his mother. And actually it plays out in John's life too and how important love is as opposed to material wealth and patronage of, of powerful people and having a name. So um, I, I just love that groundwork. So just think of the, the Romeo and Juliet story, but they do get married. So that's okay. a good part.
1: So John was born in 1592, and he was the youngest of three brothers. He had brothers um, Luis and Francisco. And um, he was, old, John was just more than two when his father died. And so they were, as you said, for instance, he, they were poor, and his mother managed the best she could. Um, and John's brother Louise died uh, perhaps from um, malnutrition yeah, it was so, so, sad. so they really he experienced all that at a, a very young age. As he got older, and you think back all the way people learned trades and things, John had apprenticeships in carpentry and tailoring, sculpturing and painting. but it said that he really showed no interest and enthusiasm in uh, any of those. He was very gentle and patient. He had a lot of compassion, and he ended up serving as a nurse and an alms collector at a hotel uh, or h- hospital in Medina for, for people who were poor that had the plague or other contagious diseases. And so, what more compassionate job can you have than to be a nurse for the poor?
0: And a lot of them were going insane, um, and he worked with them. So he really um, learned a lot of life lessons from that experience.
1: Later on, he studied at a Jesuit school, and um, he came in contact with Latin and Spanish classics. He became acquainted with classical literature and, and uh, classical imagery and learned literary techniques. So he did have some of that classical training in, um, in literature and poetry.
0: It's all going to pay off.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and when, when he finished his studies, it was interesting that um, he was offered ordination to the priesthood and the post of chaplain at the hospital, which you think right. would be a really a, kind of the perfect thing for him. And he might have been able to help out his mother and brother out of their poverty. And um, the Jesuits also really saw his intellectual gifts um, and his piety, and they were interested in having John join their order. But he decided to enter the Carmelite novitiate. And so boy, he was a popular guy back then where everybody wanted him to come in and very unusual that he was both very intellectual but very artistic at the same time, which I think is an unusual combination.
0: Absolutely. And this would have been the ancient observance because the Discast Carmelites had not come into being yet, so I just wanted to point that out. Um,
1: and so it, it's funny because um, one of the things in the biographies it mentions that there were differences between St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross, and she admitted to becoming vexed with him at times. Yes, um,
0: but, well, and let me add here that After he was in the Order of Carmel, um, he was going to leave because they weren't keeping practice to prayer and silence and all of that. And so he was going to, he was looking, I believe, at the Carthusians. And then he runs into Teresa. Yeah. And then go ahead with what you're talking about.
1: Um, And so it was interesting because she she really wanted that intellectual side. She was looking for learned men to come in. Mm
0: -hmm. He was
1: interested in the Carthusians, as you said, who who are... um, you know, very contemplative.
0: Very and, silent. <laughs> yeah, and, and
1: um, drawn to that. And so in uh, at one point, I guess John had talked about um, that the limitations of learning really, um, you know, they were there and that maybe learning wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Not that it wasn't important, but the contemplation was more important. So it's very interesting to think about that dynamic between John and, and Therese and how they came together.
0: Well, Teresa really talked him into staying the path and joining her with a reformed um, Carmelite order, uh, which became known later as the Disc House Carmelite, because she wanted to go back to the primitive rule and live by the primitive rule. So John decided to take a chance on that, and, and to our benefit, right? <laughs> so then he gets a lot of work in, in the order. Um, So go ahead.
1: And and he he always worked with his hands. Um, It says in the summer of 1588, he returned to Segovia in Castile, where he was prior, and he spent a good portion of his time in manual labor, designing an addition to the monastery, quarrying stone for it, and working on its construction. And the biography says that he no longer wrote, but spent more time in prayer, going off to a cave on the property where he could view the countryside and have solitude for deep contemplation. Um, What was interesting at that time is that he didn't want to explain any further about the breathing of the Holy Spirit in the soul. And he said, for I am aware of being incapable of doing so, and were I to try, it might seem less than it is. So even though he wrote so much poetry, commentaries on on poetry, even toward the end of his life, it was difficult for him uh, to really express what he wanted to express.
0: Right. Yeah, but thank goodness those nuns convinced him to write so that we can benefit today.
1: And so often that that happened, Francis. don't you think that so many of, of the great Carmelite saints only wrote because they were asked to do it. They were or ordered. Ordered to do it out of <laughs> o- obedience. Yes. And what a blessing that is, because otherwise we wouldn't have a lot to read, would we? Uh, all right. <laughs> and at the time of John's death, um, when the friars began to recite prayers for the dying, John John begged and said, um, no, read some verses from the Song of Songs. So even while he was dying, he was interested in, read me the poetry of Scripture, which I think is a really beautiful thing for a poet to say. The prayers are fine, but as I die, I want to hear that um, poetry in Scripture.
0: Yes, that is significant, especially with John. Yeah. So so what did he say? Do you remember what were his words there at the end?
1: Oh, he he said, uh, oh, what precious pearls which I think even is a, such a poetic phrase right. to call um, scripture pearls but I, it, yeah. I think that's just a beautiful thing as he was artistic when he was young mm-hmm. through his, his whole life and um, I think one of the things that, that says to me is his, his poetry it wasn't just art there was something that he he really saw God in the beauty of poetry. There was right. something so his in there, experience right yeah it's a, a very deep experience for right. him.
0: And then in, as he dies he says into your hands O Lord I commend my spirit and I always think of Dr. Richard Demont. He was a discast Carmelite secular in the community of Cincinnati and um he his dying words were also into your hands O Lord I commend my spirit and Dr. Demont taught John of the Cross. So um he was uh, an advocate for John of the Cross and uh, wrote a big book on John of the Cross that is available out there on the internet. And um, uh, I, I fondly remember him as I read John of the Cross's dying words. What a connection.
1: So I think some of the key things, key points as we read John's poetry we want to remember about his life is he was trained in this classic literature and literary techniques, but deeply attracted to the contemplative life. Um, and by the end of his life he felt like he was incapable of writing in such a way that it could capture this divine union that he experienced. And even on his deathbed, he was looking for poetry. So his life, in a way, seemed to be a poem itself.
0: Yes, you know, that's a good topic for you to consider (laughs) writing a poem. (laughs) Okay, so when we have both a poem and a commentary on the poem, like we do in John of the Cross's works, um, you know, the spiritual canticle, the, the dark night, the living flame of love, um, a missing one. There's a, I sent to Mount Carmel. Um, how should we view them together?
1: Well, I, I think the Living Flame of Love is a great example of John's poetry, and we'll be talking more about um, that. But th- I think the key to remember is that the poem came first, and then the commentary is being written um, about the poem. And so without the poem, no commentary is possible. Right. Th- th- nobody could have asked him, tell us what you mean by this if he hadn't first written the poem. Um, and therefore, it's really important to get a feel for the poetry and its relation to his other work and other Carmelite poetry and understand the poetry before we understand the commentary.
0: Right.
1: Otherwise, the commentary is fine, um, but it really brings it to life in a in a different way. The, his When he gets into his commentary, the interesting thing for me about John is the commentary is very intellectual.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's so different from... From the poetry but together you have this expression of this divine intimacy and then he expresses it in the commentary a little bit more intellectually but it shows you his two sides and and mm-hmm. to me the bigger thing about the poetry i think if there's one message through all of it that john tells us is that divine union is possible that, that he had this experience and everything else any commentary on that is um is almost the, the message is almost beneath that that so often i think we we don't believe in our hearts mm-hmm. that god can come into our souls and and really um you know transcend our our humanness and it, it's such a, a beautiful thing to think about that mm-hmm. and to me that's what the poetry does because he has so much emotion in his poetry that's not in the other things he he probably uses more exclamation points in The Living flame of Love <laughs> than he did in all all the commentary combined. Wow,
0: I never <laughs> noticed that. Now I'm going to pay attention to that. <laughs> that's great, because <laughs> that's with such emphasis. You know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: So um, one of my, uh, my favorite Carmelite poets, um, who's still alive today, Father Bonaventure Sauer, who I've met a couple times, and he's both a Carmelite friar and he's a poet, and he gave a great talk, I think it was at the Atlanta Congress that, um, that you were at, about um, Carmelite poetry. And he's very interesting because he's a poet, too. He looks at things differently. He looks at the translation of, of poetry differently. And this is one of the things Father Bonaventure said in his talk um, about Carmelite poetry. He said, what's the point of it? Why not just say what you want to say plainly, simply? Indeed, not a few Carmelites skip right over the poetry of St. John of the Cross— so they can get to the commentary in the belief that what the poem is trying to say can be found better and more clearly expressed in the commentary rather than vice versa. Namely that what the commentary is trying to say is best and most clearly found in the poem. And I think that's very interesting that because I can be like that sometimes, you skip past the poem to think, well, what does it mean? And the poem, remember the, the initial point was the poem. and In a way, It would be like if you um, were to study a great piece of art by only reading the commentary, never looking and gazing at the the art. the, The point is the art. In this case, the point is the poem. And as we talk about this, I think that John could have written thousands of pages of commentary about the poem. The poem includes a broader kind of knowledge and a deeper knowledge than any commentary could because he was really talking about this experience that he had.
0: Right, absolutely. Well, you know, no matter how great a writer someone is, words cannot really describe their experience of God in all of his glory, right?
1: Exactly. exactly. In in, um, Father Bonaventure's talk, he went on to say this in, in that line. He said, obviously, this relationship between religious language and our experience of God is very complex and dynamic. On the one hand, we rely on the language of scripture, doctrine, literature, devotion, and spirituality. We learn this language as a religious language, and it shapes our experience of God to a considerable extent. On the other hand, and to me this is really kind of the key, our experience of God tends to elude our religious language. It seems as if it exceeds our language, and if it were, escapes it. And that's kind of the key thing. No matter what language we have, we're talking about a God that is so great that cannot be put in a box of language. So language is a great thing, um, I think that's one of the reasons when we talk of Christ, Christ was the word, it, which is linked to our language, but also so much greater than it. There's no way to um, to box God in or to describe God in a way that would, we might get some of the attributes, but mm-hmm. not all of the attributes because God's just too great.
0: Absolutely. It's very powerful. Um, and so I, I want to back up just a second here because there was a point you had made to me earlier. Um, You were talking about instruction speaks to the intellect while poetry gives expression to a spiritual feeling or experience. I think that's very important for us to reflect on because so much of us go into prayer and to study um, with you know a heady knowledge and wanting to know about Christ but real prayer is being with Christ speaking have a conversation with him so um, this this idea of the poetry giving the expression to this spiritual experiences it's like being immersed in God through the poetry rather than just learning about him or speaking about him or just looking at him it's it's more of a depth there. And I have to confess, the first time I read John Cross, <laughs> I read the poem real quick, and then I jumped into the commentary. <laughs> right. But um, on subsequent times when I went back to read, I spent a lot more time on the poem. In fact, I even tried to, to memorize certain acts of the poem to um, help me to get immersed into it a little bit better.
1: That's it's such an important um, point to look at. The Um, The intellect versus that spiritual experience. And they're both really valid forms. There's many kinds of knowledge that we Mm -hmm. have. And one of the beautiful things about what God has given to us, um, and especially through art, is that if we could only understand God intellectually, you would have to be very smart and intellectual to know God. But if you're totally illiterate, you can be a contemplative and know God in this intimate way, which is is so amazing to me Mm -hmm. that everybody can experience that. Now, might you experience it in a different way if you had the intellect of St. John on the cross? Well, I'm sure he did. Um, But I'm sure that there were many other. Um, you know some of the yeah. Carmelite nuns who weren't who weren't educated in the same way, right. but still with that beautiful contemplative right. spirit.
0: God's available to everybody at every level. So isn't that beautiful? So, um, you know, you were. I want you to continue on this difference uh, between poetry and commentary. Um, you had referred to Father Bonaventure.
1: Right. So, so Father Bonaventure um, says that poetry means what it means not so much by direct statement as by evocation and suggestion. With its use of images and metaphors, it works upon our imagination and draws us into a kind of interior experiencing of the poem. We live the poem, in other words, rather than simply think
0: it. I love that. That really speaks to me. Live the poem.
1: And as we as we go forward and talk about this, that's one of the reasons I think that so much of Scripture is poetry. Some mm-hmm. estimates, more than 30%, because... It draws us internally, so it helps us, poetry helps us recollect ourselves, Mm -hmm. and um, it's a natural way to to pray the Psalms, for instance, to lead um, into contemplation is a beautiful thing, and the Psalms do that in a different way because of the poetry that's involved in them.
0: Yeah, that's very beautiful. And, of course, you know, Teresa Vavla wrote some poems. Now, she's not as well-known for her poetry. I, I think there's a couple of them that really stand out, but, you know, this wasn't her forte. I think her forte was in her um, interior castle, and her th- the poetic part of her was using analogies to um, elicit this experience of God, which, you know, like the butterfly or the, or the the moth, and the moth cycle, and it's coming to life. So it just... Uh, or the soul is a crystal mansion a castle so you know she has a very poetic side but John is the one who's most known for his poetry. Between the two of them, by far, right? Right.
1: And and for Teresa, much of the poetry she wrote was actually to entertain the other nuns. She did a lot of lighter um, poems and things.
0: This was an exercise that the nuns did as part of their recreation, how to honor people on their feast day or um, everything. So yeah, that was
1: which is kind of a neat, is a a beautiful thing where John was. he seemed like he was much more serious. And there's a difference between mystical poetry that we're talking about that John writes. Teresa wrote some of that. But then there's other things. If she was writing about um, you know, something that was lighter verse for one of the nuns' birthdays, I'm sure right, it wasn't right. mystical poetry, but it still, right. still could be beautiful.
0: <laughs> and yet she used her poetry and others' poetry, I'm sure, to uh, be drawn into a deeper prayer.
1: Right, right. So for Teresa, she did. She often wrote poetry in moments of deep prayer, um, during which she said that she entered into an even greater quiet. So okay. even the writing the poetry and reciting it quieted her down. and Does that work for in, you that internally.
0: way? When you are writing a poem about something more deep, I mean, because I don't know, I haven't read every one of your poems, I've read a lot of them, but um, does that, is that your experience when you're writing poetry? Does it draw you into a deeper prayer? Or do you write your poem after your prayer?
1: It depends. for For me, it usually goes the other way around. the The um, especially if I'm reading scripture in Lexio Divina, and mm-hmm. and um, something really hits you, and oftentimes it's out of a um, a word or a thought, and the poem kind of evolves from from there. But what's it's a little bit um, mystical to me because it's never the same twice you know it's different writing different poems feels different and reading different poems and even where one person will read a poem and think that didn't move me at all and somebody else will read one and it does move them and I don't think there's any way to really figure that out Mm -hmm. God just works in different ways and you know Mm -hmm. the same way a piece of scripture might hit you one day and not hit me in the same way God is the living word works differently depending yeah. on who we are and where we are in our spiritual journey.
0: Man, one moment we're in, inspired, and the next moment we're in the dark, right? <laughs>
1: right, right. Go So, ahead. so Father Bonaventure um, continues with this thought about poetry and beauty. He said, With the experience of God's beauty, of course, we glimpse something of God's being, if only fleetingly and faintly, like Elijah at the mouth of the cave atop Mount Horeb. Divine beauty seems, therefore, Unnervingly, other, holy, transcendent, before which we feel our own nothingness, and yet this is precisely where the beauty and holiness of God reach their perfection. Here they acquire a truly amazing quality, lifting us into the experience of spellbound wonder. I love that. that (laughs) He's so poetic in his commentary. (laughs) um, The mouth of about the mouth of the cave. Yeah, speaks
0: as Elijah. That's a great image of Elijah.
1: really just beautiful
0: well why don't you start um why don't don't you read one of john's poems to us because i think a person who writes poetry um, has a better sense of reading poetry i mean there's a connection there that i think is is very special so uh, maybe you could begin by uh, reading the poem of the living flame of love for us
1: that would be great the living flame of love oh living flame of love that tenderly wounds my soul in its deepest centre. Since now you are not oppressive, now consummate, if it be your will, tear through the veil of this sweet encounter. O sweet cautery, O delightful wound, O gentle hand, O delicate touch that tastes of eternal life and pays every debt. In killing, you change death to life. O lamps of fire in whose splendors the deep caverns of feeling, once obscure and blind, now give forth so rarely, so exquisitely, both warmth and light to their beloved. How gently and lovingly you wake in my heart, where in secret you dwell alone, and in your sweet breathing, filled with good and glory, how tenderly you swell my heart with love.
0: Oh, that's really beautiful. And I hope um in our podcast notes I hope we can put this English translation and maybe the Spanish one too, because people who speak Spanish will appreciate that. Yeah, so. we'll propose and
1: did you notice all the exclamation points in there?
0: <laughs> yes. And what's
1: interesting so so this is a poem that has four stanzas,
0: mm-hmm. all of
1: which have exclamation points except the last stanza. Oh. And and I think as I I read it. You have this excitement of John, uh-huh. and then this calm indwelling in that last stanza. So where, where the <laughs> he be, yeah, it's, it's the stillness. Yeah, it's the stillness in, in there. I think it's such, such a beautiful be, poem. I'm
0: really glad you pointed that out. Um, yeah, you're giving me a, another way of, of my pondering this. Um, well, why don't, why don't you talk about a little bit about what are the difference between the English and the Spanish versions of this poem?
1: Sure, um, so both of the poems have, uh, the, the, for the ICS translation into English and the original Spanish are four stanzas with six lines each. Um, but what's different when you look at the Spanish, and when, while that's, um, that's in the collected works, it's in the poetry section, mm-hmm. and it's really worth um, going to there because one of the things that you'll notice is that in the Spanish there's a lot more rhyming of words at the, the, at the end of the lines and um i'll put in the show notes a link there's a, a beautiful um song that was done of this poem to get a sense for how much rhyming there is in the spanish it's really uh, very beautiful and it has a lyrical quality most of which is lost in the, in the the, um, the english and um you might wonder well why is that why didn't they translate that lyrical quality into the english why do we lose that in the process and that's one and a very important thing when we're reading any of the carmelite works is to realize these were translated. Yeah. And
0: and why we have different translations of the works. I mean, we've got the ICS ones, but there's Alison Piers, there's um, so many right. others.
1: Right, it, there's so many. And how difficult it is to translate and how much knowledge you have to have to translate. Yeah, it's that's not just, the thing
0: I'm thinking yeah. about because if you're translating it and you don't have the knowledge, then you're going to misdirect a lot of people, I, I fear.
1: Right, right. So one of the main reasons you have this lyrical quality in the Spanish is that it's easier to rhyme words in Spanish and the other Romance languages because of the way verbs are conjugated. Right. Um, and so you, in Spanish, a lot of the verb endings are the same, so there's a lot of these natural rhymes in um, in there. And also you have nouns that are masculine or feminine. Many of the masculine nouns end in O, while many of the feminine nouns end in a. And so it's much more beautiful. There's a lot that's lost. And so even if you don't know Spanish, trying to sound it out and read it, you'll feel this lyrical quality and, and definitely go to the YouTube video because um it's beautiful. It's so, right. and, and that's why John's considered not only a great Carmelite poet, but in Spain one of the greatest Spanish poets.
0: Yes, right. And so we will make sure we put that link in the program notes, so that um, you can, you listeners, can go and and enjoy that. So I, I imagine it, we'll have a couple of links there. But there will
1: be all kinds of links. And it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't just um, kind of that lyrical in nature. But the nuns at the time often sang John's poetry. So what a beautiful thing that where we read it we don't normally sing it. Right. And so that might be something to think about because that's where you really get the beauty and this emotion and this intimacy when they're when it's in song, even more so than in the poem itself. Well, they
0: always say, the one who sings prays twice. So. <laughs> all right, so you called the poem lyrical. So can you expand upon that a little bit more?
1: Sure. So the, uh, the living flame of love is considered lyric poetry. And um, lyric poetry, strictly speaking, is... Um, was meant to be sung and not just recited. So it's almost like writing song lyrics in a way. So
0: if we're just reading um, John of the Cross poem, whether it's English or Spanish, we're missing out uh, because of we're missing the music part. Right. and Which reminds me, uh, for those of you who are interested in the music aspect, um, John Michael Talbot, has a CD out there that uses some of John the Cross's poems as a basis of some of the music he does, which are so beautiful, so you might want to check out his uh, website. As a
1: matter of fact, if you go onto YouTube, Francis, and you just type in Living Frame of Love, mm-hmm. you will find John Michael Tablet. You will find many choirs. So many people have set that poem to music mm-hmm. in, ma- in many different ways, and it's a whole different expression when he does it he he's playing guitar, but then you'll hear a whole choir play it, and mm-hmm. um, it just shows you how powerful this image was that so many people wanted to set it to music. And John loved um, music as well. He was he was known for to be a real kind of appreciator of um, music. And as I said before, the nuns would sing this, so it's a very different experience. As a matter of fact, I remember when we went to Avila, it, and um,
0: Avila, we, Spain, so Avila, Spain, Avila, Spain, our listeners. <laughs>
1: um, <laughs> It was amazing how many musical instruments were in the convents. Mm. Tambourines and horns and all of these things. That music was so important to them, partly because that's how I'm sure they entertained themselves, Mm -hmm. but also for that liturgical life. Very, very interesting. You you don't think about that when you're thinking about these contemplative nuns and them being a brass band at the same time.
0: (laughs) Well, of course, there is an image of St. Teresa Vavla holding a tambourine, you know, um, and, and saying something about, you know, no gloomy saints, right? something about that. <laughs> All right, so um, lyric poetry, okay, I a formal type of poetry. So
1: um, there, are, there are really kind of, lyric poetry, it's a formal type of poetry that expresses personal emotions, it's typically spoken in the first person, um, and it comes from, um, the, uh, it's kind of an ancient Greek literature term, um, from the musical instrument, the lyre. Where okay. it w- which is a stringed instrument that would be played while somebody was... Um, like David. <laughs> right. It, it, right, exactly. Um, and so Aristotle had divided um, poetry into kind of three categories. There was the lyrical, which was sung through the dramatic, which was in po- poetic form, but kind of like Shakespeare's plays or something like that, mm-hmm. where you have poems that are in play form. And then the epic poems that would be things like uh, Dante's Divine Comedy and, and Homer's Odyssey and things like that. Um, and uh, as I said before, if you go to YouTube, you hear all these different things. So in the show notes, I'll put some of the links because it's a real, it really kind of brings this alive when you start to hear people singing some of these poems.
0: Wonderful. Well, you know, we are very blessed to have these great translations by our Discalced Carmelite Friars. And I know translating must be a difficult work, don't you suppose?
1: It's very difficult. In, in and a previous job actually did I I'm not a, wasn't a translator myself, but I had to translate um, things, and, because you're not just translating a word for word, but the meaning. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, especially when you think about the many phrases that we have um, that we might understand in the U.S, but maybe in another country they wouldn't really know.:
0: Right, Because what we you're have idioms about. specific to the United States. I mean, one of our senators is really good at, with those little phrases that you're like. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and, and of course, people in, from other countries visiting, and they're like, "What is? what are they talking about? <laughs> yeah.
1: So yeah. one of the questions is that when you're translating is, should I translate the literal words, mm-hmm. or should I translate the meaning of those words? Mm-hmm. And how do you combine those? and? Again, um, Father, and then we
0: need to trust the translator that he understands the meaning. If he goes that route, you know, right? Uh, because yes. if you if they're not really knowledgeable, and they're translating, you know, we we might miss the point of the poem.
1: That's why when I'm reading Carmelite works, I always go to ICS Publications because I trust the friars with their. Their knowledge of the language but of theology as well you're going right. to get a better translation
0: plus they're living that life and right. they've been studying these um, Carmelite Saints and and living that life so yes I think I think you're absolutely right yeah,
1: there. certainly we're dealing with some pretty deep um, topics there so Father Bonaventure said this about the translation of st. Teresa of Avila's poetry he wrote of course, part of the problem is that we are reading Teresa's poetry in a language other than the one it was written in. And while something is lost in all translation, this can be said even of Teresa's prose works, in the translation of poetry, something crucial and very near the heart of what makes poetry work is poetry gets lost. The magical, playful, deeply resonant, widely expansive qualities that make especially lyrical poetry so richly expressive and lavish with meaning, slip away in translation, and with them, the poem. So you can, you might translate it, and you might lose the, everything that you've translated because you're thinking it reads like a laundry list now, the, the emotion or what the, the, uh, the real thought behind the, um, the poem. And he continues, there is an alternative though, and that is to rework the original poem in the new language as a new poem, to read it, absorb it, try to extract its substance And then trying to be as faithful as one might be to, say, some half-remembered event of one's childhood, to retell it as a poem in one's own words. And at the um, Atlanta Conference, he did that, which was one of the most amazing things that I've ever heard, where he translated the poem as a poet, trying to translate its meaning Mm -hmm. and not word for word, which I thought, wow, that's quite an undertaking. But because he's a Carmelite friar and a poet, he was really able to pull it off.
0: Right,
1: yeah. And so what I thought I could do um, is read St. Teresa of Avila's poem and then follow that with Father Bonaventure's translation of it. So All you right. can kind of hear both of those.
0: Okay, just introduce th- each one so that we know what one we're hearing.
1: <laughs> so th- this is the the poem before the, Before the Beauty of God by St. Teresa of Avila. And again, this is the English version of the Spanish translation. So and this you- is Father the, 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 no, no, this is this is St. Teresa of Avila's writing.
0: Right, but, yeah. but is this his translation of her Spanish?
1: No, this is hers, and then I'll read his translation, so you get to hear both of okay. them. Okay. So this is what St. Teresa of Avila wrote. O beauty exceeding all other beauties always, though hurting you wound not, and painlessly you undo the love of creatures, O not that binds two things so unequal, Why do you unbind yourself, since bound you give strength, turning evils to good? Unite her without being to you without end, finish without finishing, and without having to love, make great this nothingness. So that's what Saint Teresa wrote, and what I'll read now is. This is Father Bonaventure's non-literal translation. So he's trying to say, this is really what she was feeling.
0: The essence. Yeah, the the,
1: the essence. And so it's not a word for word, but he's trying to get at the essence. And this is what Father Bonaventure Sauer wrote. Beauty higher, deeper, wider, you dwarf all else. The lions roar, the vast grassy plain, the stars at night. You stab and cut and look, you leave me standing. Though the world seems plain, pale, yellowed, no tears are shed, for you are here. You are the bright summer sky, and I a puddle, yet yet a thread of sunlight binds us, and I shine. A cloud passes, shadows fall, a shudder ripples through me. Are you gone? And if not, why leave me lying here, a blank, a nothing, a mirror so easily shattered? Come piece me together. Fill me with your love's radiant smile.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. Mm, thank you.
1: So you you can see that there's it, it, translating this poetry is really a very d- kind of difficult thing because you're trying to get the beauty of it as well as um, as well as the meaning. And so I just thought that was an interesting exercise. Yeah,
0: thank you for pointing that out. I hadn't really considered it that way. I, I remember though, Father uh, Bonaventure talking about that at the Congress and, and what he shared was very beautiful. I'm sure people can find that talk somewhere too.
1: Yeah, I'll put a link in the show notes because there's um, the uh, the text of his talk is in there and it's really a beautiful thing, something that you don't hear very often to talk about the poetry in that right,
0: way. Right, right. All right, so now I have another question. Um, John LaCrosse's poem, The Living Flame of Love, was about the union of the soul with God on earth. So, But he wasn't the only Carmelite who wrote poetry about the topic of divine union. Do you know, um, can you share some of the others?
1: Well, there were so many, and that's what really got me interested in this topic. There are so many Carmelite saints and other saints who wrote poetry. And I kept thinking, well, why was that? Why did so many of them write poetry? And I think its source came out of this divine union and a way to express something that they had so much joy in, but didn't know another way to express it. They couldn't explain it to people, so they would use poetry. And so one of my favorite Carmelite um, saints and poets is Jessica Powers, who was no, also...
0: She's not. Is she a saint? She's not a saint I, I was, yet. I'm sorry, not a saint yet. <laughs> Maybe she's going to be. Someday. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, she, she has a lot. She has a book of poetry yeah. out there. Lots and lots of poems.
1: Yeah, many. And um, she was known as Sister Miriam of the Holy Spirit, and she died in 1988 um, and lived in Wisconsin. She was a, a cloistered nun um, for most of her life. Right.
0: So she's known as Jessica Powers, and her religious name, Sister Miriam of the Holy Spirit, just just for our listeners to make that clear. Mm-hmm.
1: And the, um, ICS Publications has a great collection of her poems. Um, now, what's different about these is they were written in English, so that no yeah. translation had, to, had yeah. to be done. And she writes a lot about um, nature, very contemplative, but with a very different feel than some of John's poetry, too. Mm-hmm. So let, let me read one of those. And this poem by Jessica Powers is called For a Silent Poet. Song was a wild bird, and it came unbidden it settled down across the darkened air, to a gray ba- branch in a dull orchard hidden, one morning it was there. Feathers of lustre and a polished beak, you cried in your delight, what is this bird that in one space of music seems to speak, the note and the note's word. It came from meadows seasonless and boundless and to your orchard for a summer stay and then one night you saw it lift on soundless, white wings, and float away. Weep not that visit of a brief duration. You are a guest yourself, and you must know that in you lie the instincts of migration and where the bird went. One day you will go.
0: All right, wonderful. And I see you have another example here. This is uh, Sister Mary Grace. Why do you say her last name Melker?
1: I believe it's it's Melker. So um, Sister Mary Grace um, has uh, she's a, a close Carmelite nun in um, the Carmelite Monastery of Terre Haute in Indiana. And with some of the other poetry work I do online, she has sent me poems, which is kind of a neat thing to be corresponding oh. with um, a um, a Carmelite nun. And she also writes icons.
0: Oh yes, so I she, love icons. <laughs> yeah.
1: So she see re-
0: icons are poetry to me. <laughs> I'm a visual when it comes to to that. So the visual aspect speaks more to me than mm-hmm. the the um, oral. Um, and, and I, I know people are just different. Some of them are very visually oriented and others are, you know, sensual. You know, they their senses and others um, through the hearing. So it's nice that we have these different avenues to experience all of this.
1: Many different things. And what's always interesting to me about icons is that a lot of people might say, well, don't you mean paint icons? Well, no, when they do icons, they talk <laughs> right. about writing icons, yes, which yes. I think is... is um, because it's more than the, the picture. It's almost like writing poetry. It's yes. a, a really a beautiful thing.
0: Yes, there's so much deep meaning in an icon. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I love icons. So, oh, well, so this you is a poem that. that Sister
1: Mary Grace wrote, um, and I think you'll see all kinds of John of the Cross imagery in this. I just think this is really beautiful, and it's called Enkindled. When I am rubbish and you are the flame, I really have nowhere to turn my choice to escape and remain what I am, or stay in you and burn. When I am the wet log and you are the fire, my options are much the same. I will sputter and sweat and turn black and stink, but I'll stay there in your flame. O Christ, I believe that one day I shall be made pure in your cleansing blaze. By your grace I am chosen for transforming love. I must burn with thanksgiving and praise. Getting out of love's fire is not my desire, for in fire all must perish at last. Through death will I come to be risen from death, and the feast only follows the fast. So throw it all in, the offense and the sin, the weeping and wailing and woe, all the hidden resistance, the shortage of trust, and the flame of your love, let it go. In the end when the caverns are all emptied out, and I am unfettered and free, your flame will then dance in the joy of romance, and its enkindled air will be me.
0: That's awesome. And yes, there's a lot of John the Cross there. He reminds me of St. Therese of Lisieux, the little flower, because of a lot of her writings or, or her prayers or her poems. You you can see the strain of Teresa in some of them, and others you can see the strain of John or, so, or a combination. So, you know, you really see this heritage that John and Teresa have given us and how it is um, then Uh, giving new life in a new sense, you know, because you have a new personality and a new saint, um, and uh, it's just so beautiful.
1: It's part of our Carmelite heritage. That's the beautiful thing about this. It's not just, we're not just reading writings. This was, um, you know, when when John on the Cross wrote this poetry, he was writing it for us. Mm -hmm. What a beautiful thing. (laughs) Thank you, John.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We appreciate it.
1: One of the the poems that has really touched me, over the years, and it was really just one line of this. It was written by um, St. Teresa of and it's the poem, I die because I do not die.
0: I remember that struck me too, that and line, that, that oh line. my goodness. But what's
1: interesting about it is John uses the same line. Yes,
0: I noticed, yes, that so was wonderful. It
1: must have been. Some, it must have been, I don't know, like a saying, but it was a, a common thought. Um, but I wanna just read a couple stanzas from stanzas four and five of that poem. Ah, how bitter a life when the Lord is not enjoyed. While love is sweet, long-awaiting is not. O God, take away this burden, heavier than steel. I die because I do not die. Only with that surety, I will die, do I live. Because in dying, my hope in living is assured. Death bringing life. Do not tarry, I await you. I die because I do not die. And that line is always, it pierces me. Mm -hmm. It's such a powerful line. Um, And it's amazing how in one line, I think you can hear that, and each of us has that personal experience of dying because we do not die.
0: I know, I have taken that phrase particularly to prayer many a time.
1: Yeah, it's really, and that that one hit me so strongly that I actually wrote a poem um, about... That, that line, you said, asking me before, where did the poems come from? Well, that line um, inspired in me um, a whole poem about how powerful that um, that is. How can one line touch you to the core mm-hmm. that you just want to kind of meditate um, on it? And you feel this connection with Teresa about um, some kind of shared experience where you say, right. I know what you mean when you you know when you say, I, um, I die because I do not die. Nice. And so I wrote the poem, it was the the title poem of my book, The Raw Stillness of Heaven, and it's based on that line. How is it that your poem bridges the chasm from God to my soul? As water primes a pump, your words bring forth a prayer that slakes my heart. Words I didn't know were mine until you put them into my mouth. Your pen punctures the raw stillness of heaven, love spilling out like chrism, anointing my head and ears my eyes and lips. Each stanza is a sacrament, ink mingling with holy silence to form a new incarnation. As God meets your hand, somehow grace is captured on a flimsy page, connecting me once again to my Lord.
0: I love that poem. I'm so glad you read that for us today. And I'm I am glad to hear the backstory of that because I did not know that this poem, The Raw Stillness of Heaven, was based on that line from Teresa. So, you know, that, knowing that backstory just gives it more power and meaning for me. I, I love this. I, when I first read that book of poetry, this is the one that struck me immediately. It's like, ah, it was really great. So, and that's the beauty of poetry, right? It can connect us in ways that are, are different from commentary. But as you said, they contain wisdom, but just just different types of wisdom. And you know, I'm so grateful for you coming today and sharing this Carmelite conversation with us um, in a tribute to John of the Cross, because you being a poet uh, gives us a better grasp uh, for ways that we can use prayer, um, poetry as prayer, and prayer that leads to poetry and, and just this... Uh, uh, drawing us deeper into the experience of God. It's, it's just amazing. So I really right. thank you. And,
1: and I, I think it just one kind of final thought with that. As we're reading some of these poems, especially something like the Living Flame of Love that is so short. And I if someone said, Well how should I study this? I would think every time you pick up the um your collected works of St. John of Lacrosse to read this, pray the poem first. It's short. You could, you could do that every day before your 30 minutes of meditation. Pray the poem in the same way that this poem came out of John's divine union. Let it lead you into your own recollection. It's a beautiful, beautiful way to do it, not only to bring you to God, but to connect with such a beautiful Carmelite saint.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for that suggestion. And I hope our listeners will take up that challenge when you decide to study and read and learn from John of the Cross. That, and even if you just read his poems alone and you don't do the commentary, um, that will still take you to great places because he's he's sharing his experience of God. So thank you for uh, enlightening our minds on all of that, Timma. I, I think we're going to have to have another conversation uh, and talk a little bit more because you, you have more to share. I'm, I just see it and I just know it. So thank you again for joining us. And so I ask my listeners now um, that we're going to close with a, a short prayer. And these are the words from St. John of the Cross. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let your divinity shine on my intellect by giving it divine knowledge. And on my will, by imparting to it the divine love. And on my memory, with the divine possession of glory. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for joining us on Carmen Light Conversations. God bless you.